Do, do I have enough of these? Somebody can steal mine if it's... Yes, that'll be actually very helpful. Yes, it's probably okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, let's go ahead and pray and we get started. Father, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for giving us opportunity to gather together and to study your word. Um, and thank you today for giving us the book of Numbers, uh, where we have these censuses and counts and um, laws. Would you reveal yourself through the book of Numbers? Reveal yourself through um, the things that you're, you, you teach here and um, reveal your character in the ways that you've uh, set your law uh, out to Israel. Uh, we ask that you would bless us tonight and all those things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, she's going to get notes, which means I'm missing notes, but that's okay for the moment. Um, but we're in the book of Numbers, so this is week four of five of our walk through the five books of the law. Um, we looked at Genesis at the beginning and, and some kind of basic principles. And we looked at the creation cycles through Genesis and Exodus. Last week we looked in Leviticus at the offerings uh, the five offerings that are at, at the core of the holiness code and the, the system of law there. <clears throat> and so today we're moving on to Numbers. And Numbers is, is kind of tying up a lot of loose ends that happened in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. So when we get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means the second law. So deuter, nomi, it's the second law, so the second giving of the law. And so Deuteronomy is kind of a covenant renewal. And so Numbers is, is, before we get to Deuteronomy, Numbers is closing up all of the loose ends there. And so um, one thing to note about Numbers is these are not in chronological order. So there are things that happen in Numbers that are kind of interspersed throughout Exodus and Leviticus. But one of the main points of Numbers is to distinguish between the old generation and the new generation. And that's the kind of the main two sections. So Numbers 1 through 25 deal with the old generation, and 26 to the end deal with the new generation. So you remember that the old generation, they were the ones who sent out spies to the land of Canaan, and they came back, and that generation said, we're not interested in that. So we're, we're scared. We don't want to go into Canaan. And so God does not allow them to come to the land. But that's just the first of um, three great sins that they commit. So the first sin is the rejection of the land. Uh, their second sin is the rebellion of Korah, who rebels against Moses. And their third sin is the striking of the rock. So when Moses, you remember in Exodus, Moses taps the rock and water comes out because they're thirsty. In Numbers, this is a different episode, he strikes the rock and then he's, water does come out. There's mercy there. But he's not allowed into the land. And so there's, there's more and more through those three sins, there's more and more exclusion from the land. And then God says that generation has to die out. And so in the book of Numbers, there's two censuses. There's one... So the first census happens in Numbers 1. The second census happens in Numbers 26. And that's the census of the old generation, the census of the new generation. 
Um, the covenant with Phineas, and we're going to talk about the covenant with Phineas in a little more detail later, is the transition point. And right before that is the story of Balaam, which you're probably familiar with. The Balaam, his donkey starts talking to him. And he's a, a foreign prophet who gets sent out to um, condemn and curse Israel, but God doesn't let him do it. So every time he tries to curse Israel, he opens his mouth and blesses Israel. So those are kind of the major divisions. The old generation, then you have the story of Balaam, and the covenant of, with Phineas is the transition point, then the new generation. I was, I was telling Jim earlier, so we, we had, for the first, we, we're streaming this on YouTube, and for the first couple of these, we're, we had like average views for, for what we do, and then Leviticus had like two or three views, which was kind of weird, and I think it's because we were talking about ritual sacrifice, and YouTube wasn't a big fan of that. Well, tonight, <laughs> um, tonight we're going to talk about the covenant with Phineas, and um, if I wouldn't encourage you to watch it with your grandchildren, um, it's it's R-rated. So, and probably YouTube will not like that either. But um, the covenant with Phineas is actually very important. So, in this structure of old and new, we have two censuses. Is that the correct plural of that? I think it is. So, in, in Numbers one and two, there's a description of the gathering of an army. And why are they gathering an army? It's because they're about to, at least in theory, attempt to conquer Canaan. And so God is gathering up this this heavenly host is what it is. We'll eventually get to that. And he's preparing them to go to war. So there's a count. This is really a draft, like a conscription. There's a count of all of the men who are older than 20 years. The Levites are excluded because they have their own warfare to deal with. So worship is warfare. This is kind of a biblical way of thinking about it. Worship is a declaration of the kingship of Yahweh. So when Abraham goes around Canaan building these altars to Yahweh, that's a declaration of war. So it's not just that... um, they didn't have religious liberty like we have, right? You can't just worship whoever you want to worship. To go into someone else's country and build an altar is an act of war. It's an act of defiance to their gods who rule over them, right? And so the Levites, are, they're not exempt from the war. They're exempt from the fighting, but they, they are involved in a battle on the spiritual realm. The, the rest of the Israelite men fight on the physical realm, and the Levites are fighting on the spiritual realm by serving in the tabernacle, and in the temple. <clears throat> so that's Numbers 1. And there's a lot of... So fair warning, this is going to get kind of weird. There, <laughs> there's a lot of astrology going on, and I'll, I'll unpack that in a minute. But the numbers are not just arbitrary. Um, the numbers have lots of astrological s- significance. That does not mean that they aren't true. So, uh, for example, there were 57,400 of the tribe of Zebulun listed. That number has symbolic meaning. That, that has something to do with the, the year like of Mercury, I think. So, but that doesn't mean that it's a, a fake number. So, but what's, what's happening is God is establishing a new heaven. And the army of Israel is representative of the heavenly host. And so I have a picture here of the construction of their camp. And so Numbers 2 um, gives detailed descriptions on how the camp of the Israelites 
is to be laid out. So you'll notice that the tabernacle is in the middle, and it faces east, which is that way for us. So you guys are, you guys are facing north right now, so this is accurate. So the tabernacle faces east, and the Levites live in the middle around the tabernacle. So the priests are on the east side because the entrance is on the east, and then the Levites who help the priests serve in the temple live around, live around the tabernacle. And they are serving a role, you know, priestly role is to work and to keep. Remember, Adam had those calls to work and to keep. And part of what they're doing is guarding the tabernacle. And so they're the last line of defense against the tabernacle. Then God sets up four broader camps around the tabernacle. The camp of Judah is on the east, the camp of Reuben on the south, the camp of Ephraim on the west, and the camp of Dan on the north. So obviously there are 12 tribes, but these four tribes are kind of the the principal tribes that kind of have preeminence over the others. So Ephraim, for example, is the largest tribe. It's the biggest tribe, and it becomes the most powerful tribe. Judah is obviously the kingly tribe. Uh, Dan is the protection of the, uh, the, from the north. So Dan is always the first line of defense from Assyria, from Babylon. Um, they're on the north side here, but if you ever see in, in the Bible the phrase from Beersheba to Dan or from Dan to Beersheba, Beersheba is the furthest south. Dan is the furthest north. And so the, the protectors to the north. And Reuben is the firstborn son. And so the other tribes get kind of subsumed in the camps of these larger four significant tribes. Um, now, it's significant. If you look at the numbers, this is actually kind of a cross. And so I'm, I don't know how significant that is. It might be a coincidence, but the camp does look like a cross. But it also looks like a cherubim or a cherub. If we... Um, Flip to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1. I told you this was going to get weird. It's going to get real weird. So um, in Ezekiel 1, so Ezekiel gets a vision. In Ezekiel 1, 4, he gets this vision, and he says, I looked, and behold... A stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it. So remember, you're facing north, and so this is the direction that things are coming from. And fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. And the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and wings thus. Their wings touched one another, and each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went in. This is the important part, for us today anyway. Verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. So remember, there's four creatures that each have a human face. The four had a, had a face of the lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. And that's implied on the back side. So, remember, it's coming from the north. So if I am a cherub, I'm coming from the north, what's the first thing you see? It's the human face. On the right side, 
There's, sorry, I'm getting confused. On, the right, on your right is the lion, right? On the other side is the ox, and on the back side is the eagle. So the cherub had, had these four faces. Now, this is a vision of the throne room of God. The tabernacle is a representation of the throne room of God on earth. And God is assembling an army around his holy place, like the heavenly hosts. And so we can see, if you look at the map, we can see these four faces. So Judah is the lion. A lot of this is in Genesis 49, the blessings there. So we see the face of the lion on the east guarding the tabernacle. On the south, Reuben is a man. He represents, Part of the, th- the thing that represents Reuben is water, which is unsteadiness, right? That he has some sort of... Um, it's related to his freedom of will, right? On the west, Ephraim is an ox because he's strong and he's big and he's going to become the most powerful um, tribe. And to the north is Dan, who's the eagle, which is the back of the head. Dan is the eagle which in Genesis 49 is represented as a serpent, but there's a relationship astrologically between the serpent and the eagle. So does that make sense to everybody? So there's four camps on four sides of the tabernacle, and these are related to the four faces of the cherubim. Does everybody follow that? So um, now astrology is condemned in the Bible. But astrology looks at the stars and attempts to draw meaning from them. So God condemns the use of astrology for divination. He condemns the use of astrology for, um, to, to seek guidance. But he uses these natural things that he has created to illustrate things about himself. And so, and part of what he's doing here, and, and the cherubim are created almost... Um, polemically, as a kind of a front and an insult to these zodiac signs. And so Judah, the lion, corresponds to Leo, the lion in the constellation. Reuben corresponds to Aquarius, Ephraim to Taurus, and Dan to Scorpio. And so um, I'm not suggesting you go read your horoscope tomorrow and, and live your life based on that. But part of what's happening is God is saying, I am the Lord of the the heavenly hosts. I am the Lord of the stars. I am the Lord of these constellations. And these other nations may worship these constellations. These other nations may worship these gods in the sky, which in ancient Near Eastern thought, the stars were gods. That's that's what they were doing up there. And so he's saying, I'm going to create this new heaven on earth, this new heaven around the tabernacle. And he's using the symbols and language both of his creation, but also of ancient Near Eastern thought and ancient Near Eastern cosmology, astrology, to make this work. So again, I'm not saying go read your horoscope and you know, live your life you know, based on that. But it's important for us to, to recognize that um, you know, we live in cities. We live um, in places that are disconnected from the natural world. But this would have made perfect sense for the Israelite, Right? Because you navigate by the stars, um, you tell the seasons by the stars because they move through the seasons. Um, 
And people used to live on these time frames, used to live on these um, astro- astrological, astronomical signs, right? Because they would tell you when, when the seasons were changing, how to be prepared, when the year was going. We didn't, they didn't have calendars and digital clocks like we have. They used the sky to um, determine what time it was and how to, how to be prepared for different seasons. So the camp at Israel is a symbol of the new creation. Now, God creates this new creation, this new heavens, new earth, with the tabernacle and the heavenly host around. And what he's setting up is an apocalyptic fall. So in Matthew 24, for example, I've got this printed on the back here. In Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the end times. Um, and he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with heaven, with clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus is describing an apocalyptic event. And any time in the Bible you see stars falling, the moon darkened, the sun darkened. Um, and Joel, another, another image is that the moon turns to blood, it goes red. Anytime you see that language, that's apocalyptic language. That doesn't necessarily mean that the sun's going to fall out of the sky and the stars are going to fall out of the sky. But it's a sign of apocalyptic times. So, in Numbers 1 and 2, God sets up this camp. He sets up a heavenly host, modeled after the cherubim, modeled after the stars of the sky, which are representative of gods, to guard the tabernacle. And very quickly, after this is set up, they commit three great sins. And so part of what is being communicated here is that the fall of Israel in these sins is an apocalyptic event. This is the end of a world for them. And it becomes the end of a generation. So they're called, they're promised the promised land, they're called to go to the promised land and take it, And they disobey God, so God brings judgment and apocalypse onto them. And the heavenly hosts that are arrayed around the temple all fall. And so, it's not just arbitrary that that the camp is set up this way. It's set up this way to communicate the depth of sin in the camp's fall. The depth of sin in Israel's fall is a rebel against God. Does that make sense to everybody? So, Again, I'm not suggesting that we need to start, you know, worshiping Taurus or whatever. But um, it, it would behoove us to be more aware of that stuff. Because, you know, our great-great-grandparents probably knew the stars and could look up at the sky and point out all these things. And, but um, we're very disconnected from the earth and the way that things are created. And it would behoove us to, uh, to be more grounded. Um, and it's almost... You know, this all seems very mystical, but it's almost Gnostic for us to, to say, well, um, we, don't need, we don't need that now. <laughs> but that stuff is built into the Bible. So, But there's another census in Numbers 26. We're not going to look at that. Um, but there's, there's creation and fall themes. Remember, we talked about creation and fall earlier. Um, all through this. And as the old generation falls, God always raises up a new generation. As 
Adam falls, God raises up Noah. Noah falls, God raises up um, Abraham. And all the way through until we get to Jesus. And so, but there's an expansion happening between, you know, Adam is one man, and God raises up Adam. Then there's Noah and his sons, and then there's Moses and the entire congregation of Israel. And so he's, he's getting, he's broadening out the people he raises up to be his people. And by the time we get to Jesus, we actually get a, a remnant. And so after Torah, after the law, we start talking about remnant language more and more. And so there's an expansion of the covenant and then a reduction. And then in Jesus, there's a new expansion. And so you see some of that playing out here with the old and new generations. Um, I could go more into that, but if you have any questions about that, let me know. So I know that was kind of fast. Are there any questions or concerns about the census? Is that helpful to understand that a little bit? So, okay. So that's the inauguration of the old generation. They fall. Balaam happens in 22 through 24. And then we come to Numbers 25. So go ahead and turn there. We'll read the whole thing. Numbers 25 is the, is the transition point between the old generation, this heavenly host that has fallen from the sky, and the new generation. And in Numbers 25, we have the final killing out, the final destruction of the old generation so that the new generation can rise up. Now, it's not necessarily the case that every single person, um, there would have to be, it's not necessarily the case that there is a clean break between the old generation and the new generation. Um, certainly, there are people that probably would have lived across both of those things, including, for example, Joshua and Caleb, who were around, um, obviously, for that. But... We see, and we talked about some of this last week, we see some of that covenant headship um, stuff going on in Numbers 25. And so I'll explain that in a second, but let's go ahead and read it. While Israel lived at Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, The priest has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel, who was killed with a Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Selu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. 
And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, for which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. So, like I said, this is, this is, is R-rated. <laughs> this, is, this is quite the event. If you, you couldn't make a movie about this today, well, you probably could, but you wouldn't let your kids go see it. Um, it is, this is one of the most graphic stories and violent stories in the Bible. But when we understand a little bit of the background, I think that it kind of clarifies what's going on. So when the people come to... Um, worship Baal Peor. So Baal, Baal, is the chief, well, he's not the chief Canaanite god, but he's, he's one of the, the primary Canaanite gods. And you'll notice that there's like a Baal of Peor, there's, there's different Baals for different locations. And so they come to the Baal of Peor, and they worship him. And uh, Baal just means Lord, and so he's kind of taking the place of God, is what's happening. But Part of Canaanite worship is um, the two main gods you worship in Canaanite religion were Baal and Asherah. Asherah. And they had a lot to do with fertility. They had a lot to do with uh, Baal is the thunder god. He's the, the rain god. And Asherah is the fertility goddess. And so if you want to have crops, if you want to have rain, and you want to have successful agriculture, you need Baal and Asherah on your side. But because they're so interested in fertility, there's a sexual prostitution element to worship of these gods. And so you can see why this would be attractive to a bunch of people wandering around in the wilderness, right? You, you go to the brothel, and then God gives you, the gods give you unlimited food, right? So that's the kind of thinking that's going on when they worship the Baal of Peor. Now, what that means is this is like serious, gross sin. Not only are they sinning against God and worshiping other idols, they're also committing all these other sins. There's sacrificial, human sacrificial elements in Canaanite religion. Um, we don't know how much they were participating in that, but certainly by the time we get to uh, the kings, they're participating in that. We have several Israelite kings who sacrificed their children to Baal. Um, there's human sacrificial elements. There's um, wild sexual elements. And the Israelites are just kind of participating in this whole hog. They're all in on the worship of Baal Peor. And so verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 25 is being very literal when it says, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. That's, that's not a euphemism. They're, they're actually whoring with the daughters of Moab. And so in response, God kills off the chiefs of the old generation. So remember we talked about covenant headship last week. The chiefs are representatives, covenant representatives of the people of Israel. And so, in order to finish off and kill off this old generation, the chiefs need to be killed. And you can actually go back to Numbers 1 and see them listed. And their deaths are not nice. They take them out into the hot sun and they hang them. Which, hanging is, in, in the Old Testament, hanging is a bad way to die. Uh, that's, a, that's a cursed way to die. And you'll remember the other person most fam- famously that hangs in the Old Testament is Haman on his own gallows in, in the book of Esther. And so 
We take the chiefs of the old generation, the tribal chiefs of the old generation, and give them a dishonorable death and put them in the sun before the Lord. And then they go and kill anybody else who participated individually in the process. Now, notice there is some distinction between covenant sin and individual sin, right? So it's not that you just go through the camp and kill everybody, which happens sometimes, but with, particularly with Israelites taking over countries, taking over cities. But in this case, God is distinguishing between covenant sin and individual sin. So the chiefs, most likely they were all participating in this, but um, they have a covenant responsibility to, to pay the debt that they owe. But individual people also do as well. So, in response to this, we, we gather later that there's a plague going on through the camp. And in response to this, the people repent. But, and just imagine how, how serious this is. The people are in the middle of a plague because God has given them a plague because they're sinning with these foreign women. They're committing adultery. They're probably involved in some sacrifices. They're committing idolatry. And so in response, they repent and they're weeping. And the plague is still going on. And then one guy, they're having a church service. And one guy walks in right up the aisle with this foreign woman, introduces him to his family, and takes, him, takes her in his tent. And so this is after God has extended some sort of mercy and the repentance, right? This is after God has already doled out punishment. And even after all that, this man brings a Midianite woman into the camp. And they go into the tent to do some cultic prostitution. Now, Phineas, who is Aaron's grandson, um, son of Eleazar, takes a spear. Now, priests are not authorized to do this. So priests are not authorized to dole out judgment like this. Um, there are judges that are appointed in the law. Um, this is part of what Moses does when he's setting up the nation of Israel. But this is not the office of a priest. But he does it anyway. So this would be like, you know, the preacher's kid getting up in the middle of service and killing somebody, right? Like, <laughs> so he, he picks up a spear in the middle of this worship service, goes into the tent, and runs it through both of them. Now, again, this is not sanctioned by God for priests to do. This is not sanctioned by God for a, for a priest to do. But God affirms Phineas's action. And he says in verse 11, he has, Phineas has turned back my wrath from the people and that he was jealous with my jealousy. And so, again, this is not something that he as a priest has the authority to do, but as a godly man, he takes it on himself to dole out God's justice. Now, again, just as I'm not suggesting you go start reading your horoscope and doing astrology, I'm not suggesting you go and start killing whoever happens to, to sin, right? But um, God identifies with Phineas, and Phineas is clearly God's chosen vessel for carrying out this judge, justice, which is the final act of justice before preparing for the new generation. And so it seems that this is the, the final cleansing. The chiefs are killed, all the individuals are killed, and this extreme act of Phineas 
is the last thing that's needed to prepare the new generation to enter into um, the promised land. And so God gives Phineas a perpetual covenant. Verse 12, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. Now that, that phrase, covenant of peace, is really important. Um, if you remember, we talked about it several times in Isaiah. Um, but in this case, the covenant of peace is given to Phineas and his descendants for a perpetual priesthood. So this is very similar to the covenant with David, David in 2 Samuel 7. And so David's covenant is, covenant is a little interesting. Because when we talk in terms of, remember we talk, talked about covenant history and thinking about where we are in terms of covenant theology. So we have the covenant with Abraham, or covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, which is still in effect. We have these other covenants on top of the covenant with Moses. So on top of the covenant with Moses, we have the covenant with Phineas, which is a perpetual priesthood. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we get the covenant with David, which is a perpetual kingship. Now, there's all sorts of questions about how exactly this works out. But when we get to Hebrews, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a priest king. And we make much of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, but Jesus is also the fulfillment of this covenant with Phineas. And so this, this covenant is just as important as the covenant with David. Jesus is, Jesus is the perpetual king, but he's also the perpetual priest. And so Phineas, just like David is, is a type of Christ, type, typifying Christ, Phineas is the same way. Now, David, as a king, is, is typified by his uh, justice and like covenant faithfulness. Um, Phineas is characterized by his justice and covenant faithfulness as well. But it's from a different angle. Right? The king has the authority to execute justice. But in this case, the priest doesn't. But what priest has the, what, what, who's the only priest that actually has authority to execute justice? It's Jesus as the king. And so even though this is, this is a priestly covenant, we're seeing some, some convergence between the priestly covenant and the kingly covenant. And so Phineas um, serves that role. Now, this is, again, one of the most violent and graphic sections of the Bible, but it's making the difference between the, the old generation and the new generation. So in chapter 26, the plague is lifted, and then Moses, the Lord says to Moses and to Eleazar the son of Aaron, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward. And so the old heavenly host that's laid out Numbers 1 and Numbers 2 is fallen. They fall into sin through the three great acts of, co- of covenant sin they commit, through the Korah's rebellion, through the rejection of the land, through Moses striking the rock, which is motivated by their um, grumbling. And they fall, and they're killed off, and then a new generation rises up. Now, this probably sounds familiar, that this is the cycle that we go through. And ultimately, in the New Covenant, this is, this is part of what happens, right? When you get to the transition between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, when Jesus comes, 
The temple sacrifices are still at work when Jesus is around. The temple is still, you can go to the temple, you can see everything. But in order to raise up a new generation, in order to raise up a new people, the old generation has to pass away. And, you know, Jesus, part of, part of what he does in Matthew 24, which let's, let's just turn there. Turn to Matthew 24. <clears throat> part of what Jesus is doing in Matthew 24 He's pointing at two different events. And we've talked about this before, but when we look at prophecy, prophecy uh, can have multiple different frontiers. So you can have one prophecy that's fulfilled multiple times over the course of years. And so Jesus is prophesying about two different things. He's prophesying first about the end times, the times that are to come, but he's also prophesying about um, the end of the temple sacrifices, the fall of Jerusalem, which will happen about 40 years after he um, ascends to heaven. And so, he says, in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the powers of heavens will be shaken, and there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one, heaven, one end of heaven to the other. Now, Jesus, the elect, are a new generation. And Jesus sends out his angels to the four winds to gather up this new generation in the new covenant. But before that can happen, there needs to be an apocalypse. There needs to be a falling of the heavens, a destruction of the heavens. And so, in Numbers, we have the same pattern. God establishes a, a generation. He calls them to covenant with himself, and they fall. But after the fall, he establishes a new generation. So this is typifying and pointing us to the new covenant. And I would submit to you, this is a point of disagreement, but... Um, Verse 31 is about what happens after the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem falls, and this is language, again, that, that actually gets used in descriptions of the fall of Jerusalem later on by secular writers. And after that, that, that's the point where this new covenant, this new generation is established. And we are the new generation, and we're still being gathered up. God has laid judgment on the old covenant, and we're still being gathered up into the new covenant, into the new generation. And so this new generation, we're going to talk about this in more detail next week when we get to Deuteronomy. But this new generation is given a new law. And they're given a new commission. They're given the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and, and explanations on that. And they're also given a mission to go and take the promised land. And so for us, as members of the new covenant, for us as members of the new generation in Christ... We're called to follow the new law, the law of Christ, as it's described in Galatians 3, which is just the same moral law that they were called to follow before. But we're also given another commission. So Adam is given this commission to have exercise dominion. Noah is given the same commission. Abraham is given the commission to go into the, the promised land. Moses is given that commission to go into the promised land to guard and protect it. And we are given the same mission. To, to go into the promised land and take it. But now that we're on the other side of the new covenant, 
The promised land is no longer an individual spot. The promised land is the whole world. And so God sends out his angels, and he sends out us to go into the world, to gather people up, and to establish his kingdom there. Just like Joshua and the new generation established their kingdom, God's kingdom in Canaan. So, does that make sense? Is everybody following me there? Are there any questions or concerns or anything like that? Okay. I was being a little preachy there, but I think that's okay. So, <laughs> um, well, there's nothing else. Um, let's pray and we can prepare for the choir to come in. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Um, thank you that you called us out. You've called us out into, as a new generation, as a new covenant people to go into all the world, into all the lands, and to proclaim your name, to proclaim your victory. So, Father, would you go behind us and go before us to protect us through that? And, Father, would you teach us from the failures of the old generation? Would you teach us to um, pursue your land boldly and not in fear? Would you teach us to submit to your judgments? And would you teach us to do it with a pure heart and a pure attitude? And Father, would you set us in the throne room of heaven with your heavenly host and teach us to pursue those things and to, to pursue preparation for that and holiness and suitability for your kingdom. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.